0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It's been nearly
1: eight years since a storm of historic proportions pounded Death Valley National Park and did extensive damage in Grapevine Canyon in the northeastern corner of the park where Scotty's Castle stands. The popular tourist attraction still has not reopened as repair work continues. That storm was described as a a once-in-a-thousand-year storm. A year ago, rainstorms again pounded Death Valley. In roughly three hours, one and a half inches of rain fell on the park and did considerable damage to roads and water systems and shut down the park. That storm also was described as a once-in-a-thousand-year storm. This is Kurt Repinchek, your host at the National Park's Traveler. Another powerful storm hit Death Valley National Park two weeks ago. On August 20th, 2.2 inches of rain fell at Furnace Creek, according to the National Weather Service making it the rainiest day on record in the park. For some perspective, during a full year, the park usually sees only 2.15 inches of rain. To discuss these storms and how the National Park Service is responding to them, we're joined today by Abby Wines, the Parks Management Analyst. We'll be back in a minute with Abby.
0: The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at Yosemite.org Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference, too, at friendsofacadia.org.
1: Welcome to The Traveler, Abby. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you, Kurt. So where do things stand? I know um, the park has been closed um, since the storm hit, um, pretty much because of the damage to the, the road infrastructure. Where do things look like today?
2: Right. so today, it's September 1st that we're doing this interview. Uh, we're about two weeks after the storm hit, and everything, all the roads into the park are closed. The park is entirely closed, and we are working really hard. We have 30 people from other national parks that are here in the park helping us and uh, just trying to keep our heads above water.
1: So to speak. Yes. <laughs> I'm curious. um, Can you summarize the damage? I mean, you say all the roads are closed. Is that because all the roads are damaged or because um, a majority of the roads are damaged and you just can't have visitors in the park because of the the cleanup work that's going on?
2: Right. Death Valley has 1,400 miles of road in it. (laughs) So massive when you're talking about a park the size of the state of Connecticut. But Every single one of the paved roads that are the major arteries through the park, all of those are damaged. Most of them had pavement loss. Others have debris up to five feet thick on them. Five feet. Yes, but the debris is not the real problem. The pavement loss is the problem. Our road crew, especially supplemented with the employees from other national parks that are here helping us, we can handle debris on the road by pushing it off into those shoulders. We can handle places where the shoulders are dropped off because they've eroded away. Well, we don't have the capability to fix ourselves with our own staff, Are times when A flash flood went across the top of a road and then created a small waterfall on the downhill side eroded out the shoulder and then scoured under the pavement and eventually breaks through the pavement so there are multiple places where that happened whether there's either a pavement over nothing or a drop off in the middle of the road and we need contractors to help us with that
1: Yeah. You know, nature is really impressive. I mean, back in in 88 during the last century, um, we had the wildfires in Yellowstone. And, of course, there have been wildfires in Yosemite and Sequoia National Park and Lassen Volcanic and a number of other places. And and the power of nature is just something to behold. And, of course, there at Death Valley, you really don't have forests to burn too much. But you do have a lot of, uh, I don't know if you call it desertscape, um, but the, the power of water really exerts itself on the park.
2: Yes, and it's the desertscape, as you put it, is part of why the power of water when we have water is so impactful. So think about how water, rain falls on the roof of a house and it runs down to the gutters because the roof is not permeable. Water isn't going to soak into the roof. That's what our mountain slopes are like here in Death Valley. They're mostly rock or hard packed earth with very few plants that have broken up the soil to make it more permeable. So all of those mountainsides here in Death Valley, the water just runs down to the canyons and the canyons are like the rain gutter and the rain spout in a house, channeling that water moving quickly. Except in this case, it is carrying with it large amounts of mud and rocks, boulders. So it is not a river that is moving slowly, but it is a raging, fast moving, liquid slurry of mud and rocks just six inches of what deep could be enough to swipe you off your feet, and 12 inches worth of that flash flood is enough to sweep a vehicle off of the road.
1: You know, I've been to Death Valley a couple times, and I really love the landscape, and unfortunately, I'm not a geologist. I don't know that much about geologic processes. It, it wasn't until my senior year in college that I took a geology course and if I'd taken it my freshman year I I might have been a geologist instead of a journalist but I know you've got alluvial fans around the the park where you know it it basically the I guess the rain carries everything down the the rocks and the debris and it spills out onto the 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 desert floor is that pretty much um, the process with these torrential rains driving those alluvial fans or is there another process involved?
2: Yes exactly so the what you see in far as far as the landscape in Death Valley is driven by this periodic flash flooding and alluvial fans if you're not familiar with what those are, they're basically a half circle of rock uh, gravel that gets deposited where a canyon comes out and joins the valley floor. So picture it like a fire hose spraying sometimes off to the left, sometimes off to the right, depositing rock over geologic time and that's what an alluvial fan is. All of the roads that we have go either around or across these alluvial fans. So there is no place that we could put roads in the park where they would not be impacted by flash floods.
1: You know, the the alluvial fans really are something to behold because it's, you know, nature's um, geometry, so to speak, and just, you know, how it how it impacts the landscape. Um, I'm curious. You know, we talk about super blooms in Death Valley, and usually it's, it's winter rains, you know, that November and December and maybe even January that, that prompts or precedes those super blooms. Something like this in, in late August or September is not going to be uh, an indication that a super bloom is coming next year.
2: It's too early to know if we're going to have a super bloom. A soaking rain like this that we just had in late August helps. But if we don't have a few episodes of soaking rain over the winter, then there won't be a super bloom. So who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah. getting back to the damage from this last storm. I mean, it really is phenomenal. And you've got some great um, photographs on your website. And we're going to point those out to our readers and our listeners. You know, you've got lakes that formed um, from this storm, which is really interesting. Um, Did they quickly evaporate or or, um, seep down into the ground and disappear?
2: So at this point, which is still just about two weeks after Hillary hit, uh, there is a shallow lake north of Furnace Creek and Ball Basin that I see every morning coming down from my house. And it's reflecting the mountains. It's beautiful. And there is also a shallow lake down at Badwater. Um, Shallow, what I mean by that is one inch. (laughs) So it's really a really wide puddle, but they're still beautiful.
1: Yeah, was it was it Devil's uh, Golf Course or was it the um, um, the Devil's Corn? Was it? There was another place that flooded. <laughs> I saw the picture.
2: <laughs> yes, I think we might have shared some photos or video of Devil's Cornfield. That's where it. there was active water flowing across the road. That was within a few days after Hillary, and that area is now dried up which is good because one of my employees got stranded with her husband they were out assessing the damage west of that point and when they came back the waters had risen so much this was two days after the storm that they weren't able to get home that night so i'm glad that that part of the park is drying out
1: yeah yeah really incredible now uh, obviously there's been a lot of road damage as you mentioned Um, were the concession operations uh, impacted at furnace creek and stovepipe wells so the
2: three hotels within the park, uh, the Oasis of Death Valley, which is the one at Furnace Creek Stow 5 Wells Resort, and Panamint Springs Resort, which is the little one on the west side of the park, all of them uh, had impacts of, to their business, of course, because the park is closed, so uh, no visitation, and that's and we don't know when the park will open. So I, I really worry about them for that. As far as physical impacts to them, Panamint Springs Resort, the little one on the west side of the park, yeah. that location gets its drinking water from Darwin Falls, and they lost about 1,000 feet of their water line, Mm. and it came close to running out of water, but they got that fixed, and the oasis at Death Valley, because we had a couple days warning that there was going to be severe flash flooding, they were able to make sure no one was parked in the parking lot of the inn, which is where we had really dramatic flooding with cars moved and smooshed into each other last year's storm. Right. Uh, so they had some damage, but it was nowhere near as substantial as last year because of the advance warning.
1: Well, that's good. Now, last year's storm um, tore up a bunch of the park's water lines. Any, any infrastructure damage to that to the park? Or, or did they um, um, put them in the right place? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Again, we had damage to multiple utilities in the park. Not uh, Fortunately, the most damaged water system that we had this year was a non-potable system. Uh, lost about oh, 300 feet of water line in the non-potable system that feeds the oasis at Death Valley. So that is specifically for their landscaping, the golf course, the swimming pools down there. Uh, but the potable system, the drinking water system, uh, in at that area was okay we had damage to other drinking systems in the park but none of them were catastrophic so we still have repairs to do but we're limping along
1: this is kurt repinchek with national parks traveler we're talking today with abby wines the management analyst from death valley national park about how the park is uh, faring in the wake of a historic rainstorm i guess on august 20th we're going to take a short break we'll be right back
0: National Parks Traveler has launched the National Parks RVing Guide, the definitive guide for RVers seeking information on campgrounds in the National Park System. The guide is now available free through the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. If you're a traveler who wants to explore the National Park System, you'll want this app. The guide is packed with RVing specific details for campgrounds in more than 70 national parks across the country. Search by park, state, or region of the country, and you'll find information about campgrounds that can handle big rigs, those with showers and dump stations, ADA-accessible sites, and more. You'll find stories about RVing in the parks, tips for new RVers, as well as feeds of the travelers' content. Our latest stories and recent podcasts are just a tap away. Download The National Park's RVing Guide and start planning your next trip today. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Maximize your savings with Interior FCU. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your saving strategy. Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org, federally insured by NCUA.
1: So, Abby, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, alluvial fans and, and the landscape of the park. I mean, um, was there a lot of visible changes to the landscape from this storm? I mean, did you have new or enlarged alluvial fans, deeper deeper gullies? Did the uh, Amargosa River return?
2: <laughs> right. So the Amargosa River is flowing again, as it does after most major storms. It's currently flowing into the park, filling up Badwater Basin and contributing to that large, shallow pond, uh, puddle out there. And it's actively flowing across the south end of West Side Road. So we, the National Park Service, cannot get across that to get to the parts of the park that are on the other side. And that will probably continue for some time to come. Other changes... I'm sure alluvial fans are slightly bigger and slightly different in shape, but my memory of what each one of those looks like is uh, too faint to be able to verify. Uh, There are some things that got washed out from the inn. So there's a, a large dumpster that's a quarter mile off the road now down between the junction of 190 and Badwater Road, so a quarter mile downstream from that. Uh, along with some barricades and benches and tables and things like that that washed away from the inn. That's probably
1: the most noticeable. Wow. Wow. Was anybody trapped by these roads being disrupted, cut off, flooded?
2: Probably they were, a better way to phrase it would be that there were people sheltering in place. So... Unfortunately, we were not able to close all of Death Valley proactively in advance. Several of the other national parks units around us like Mojave and Joshua Tree did that. But because of having the state highway run through the middle of the park, we can't effectively close the park unless the state closes the highway and they did not do that but with a couple days advance notice we were aggressively messaging that the weather was going to be really bad people should not come there was going to be flash flooding there would be power outages there would be phone outages we were trying to make it paint the picture as clearly as possible this would not be a fun place to vacation and all the hotels in the park contacted their reservations and didn't tell them they couldn't come, but again, recommended that they not come and offered free refunds to those folks. We closed all the campgrounds in the park and we closed all the side roads. So we did everything within our power to limit the number of people here in the park. When the storm happened, uh, it was on a Sunday morning when the first wave of the storm happened, uh, there were some people that needed assistance after that Rangers went around and assisted people with flat tires. Basically, their tires had been attacked by rocks as they tried to drive through flash floods. So the rocks were hitting the side of their tires. Sure. So we helped a lot of people then. And there was a lull in the storm from about noon on Sunday until six o'clock on Sunday when the other half of it hit us. And that really helped get people out that didn't take it seriously to begin with and pretty early after that around six o'clock is when highway 190 became completely impassable and everyone that was still in the park at that point we did not have an exit or an entrance into the park until about 36 hours later so uh, from sunday night until monday night monday night is when caltrans punched enough of a route through 190 that we could get an ambulance out if we needed to and then tuesday morning is when they allowed employees and residents to come and go so there were about 400 people in the park most of them were in, were residents at the time of the storm
1: so if i recall correctly last year um after one of the storms in august or, or september there were some people who didn't exactly take the, the warning seriously and drove into the park or got stranded in different places nothing like that this time
2: Right after the storm, one of the things we did in our initial response was to use airplane support. So California Highway Patrol and the airplane from Lake Mead National Recreation Area that the National Park Service has, both of them flew over the park multiple times, checking to see if anyone was stranded in the park. And the only person who was unable to get out is the campground host at Saline Valley Warm Springs. It goes by the moniker Lizard Lee. So we got in touch with Lizard Lee. There was no way for him to get out of Saline Valley. But he said, oh, I'm good to go. I've weathered plenty of these storms. I have three weeks worth of food. I'll be fine. Uh, Then uh, a couple days ago, he changed his mind. So a California Highway Patrol helicopter went and retrieved Lizard Lee two days ago. So that was the only person that was really trapped within the park. And he was stable for quite a while.
1: Lizard Lee, what a great name. I have to get in touch with him. The Armagosa River, it it rarely flows, is that correct?
2: Right. The Armagosa River, most sections of it are underground. Portions of it are designated as a National Wild and Scenic River. Um, So, kind of unusual to have a mostly underground river that has that designation. But right now it is flowing above ground and is impassable.
1: And and is it a a wild and raging river or is it a trickling stream?
2: (laughs) moderately raging.
1: (laughs) Not a trickling stream. Okay, okay. Um, Devil's Hole Pupfish, how did they do during this storm?
2: Sure, so uh, most disturbance events like this, what happens, and happened in this case, is debris got deposited on top of the shallow shelf which is the only source of food for the devil's hole pupfish. If you're not familiar with them, they live in this cave that is a 500-foot-deep vertical shaft. Well, the pupfish have no food down in the dark. They get most of their food from the little bit of the top of the cave that is hitting sunlight, and that spot is only two feet deep. So debris covered the top of the shelf, and in the short run, that's bad for the pupfish because it might have crushed some eggs and there's less algae there. But in the long run, it's really good for the devil's hole pupfish because that is how fresh nutrients get brought into the system.
1: And so as far as you know, the the pupfish just another day in the park.
2: Yeah, they're doing okay. We have not done a full census of them since the flooding happened. The next one is scheduled for early October.
1: Right, right. And as I recall, um, the pupfish are actually doing quite well. I mean, last year's census was a, a pretty big increase, wasn't it?
2: Yes. Uh, devil's hole pufffish got down to a low of 35 fish about a decade ago. And the last count was in the two hundreds. So we're really happy with that.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, you had, um, a once in a thousand year storm back in 2015. Um, last year's storm, um, was declared a once in a thousand year storm by the national weather service. Um, I'm guessing that, um, When they get around to it, the Weather Service will say um, last month's storm was a a once-in-a-thousand-year storm. So we've had three once-in-a-thousand-year storms in roughly eight years. That's kind of (laughs) mind-boggling.
2: Yes, it's overwhelming. And as your listeners, I'm sure know, once-in-a-thousand-years doesn't mean it's like clockwork. It's more like Vegas odds that you have a a one-in-a-thousand chance of that storm happening in any given year. However, they usually mean also in that one spot. and Death Valley is such a large place that, for example, the storm that hit Scotty's castle in 2015, it was a once in a thousand year event that it ha- that happened just over Great Fine Canyon. The rest of the park didn't experience anywhere near the damage that Scotty's castle area did in that storm. Mm, right. That all said, as far as caveats, the climate change models all predict, that storms in this area are going to get more violent and more frequent. So that may be
1: what we're seeing. Yeah, it's incredible. It, can you compare, I mean, have you sat back and I know you've been really busy with everything that's going on, but have you had time to, to try and compare in your mind or, or maybe analytically um, the storms of 2022, the storm of 2015 and, and this year's storm in terms of you know damage?
2: Right. So the storm in 2015 was much more localized. It caused extreme damage at Scotty's Castle and then damage in Jubilee Pass, which is the south end of Badwater Road, and not much elsewhere. Last year's storms, and I should put an S on the end of that because there was a major storm August 5th, 2022, and then we had nine other major events in the three months after that that caused flash flooding either park-wide or in part of the park. So it was just like, it just kept happening. Um, So I'll collectively talk about last year's storms as a whole compared to this year's single storm so far. It depends who you talk to. So Federal Highways Administration believes that the damage to the paved roads that they will help us maintain, uh, which are things like North Highway, Badwater Road, Beatty Beatty Cutoff, that, that is slightly less than the total damage that they saw last year. Caltrans, uh, who is responsible for maintaining Highway 190, says that the damage to 190 is more major than what they dealt with last year. And then there are the 800 miles worth of unpaved roads that are within the park. And from flying over them, which is all we've done so far, they look like they're much worse damaged than before. So flying over Steel Pass, for example, the road just isn't there in large sections at all. But it's hard to compare because now looking back to last year's, we're comparing boots on the ground, looking at things up up close versus an airplane assessment. So jury's still out. But order of magnitude, these last year and this year are very
1: similar. Interesting. We're talking today with Abby Wines, the management analyst at Death Valley National Park, about uh, rainstorms that the park has been enduring in recent years. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.
0: Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation The only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information, or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. So, Abby, um,
1: as I mentioned, uh, as we talked about, um, 2015 really hit Grapevine Canyon pretty hard. And, and Scotty's Castle has been in a, a very state of repair, both the castle and the, the road going up there. And then you had the fire last year. Where do things stand with being able to reopen it to the, the public totally? I know you've got some ticketed tours that, that take people up there. But w- when can I drive my car over there and enjoy it? <laughs>
2: I wish I could tell you it's going to be Tuesday three years from now, or it's going to be Tuesday one year from now. I don't know. Um, At this point, what we're saying publicly is maybe in 2025. Realistically, I think we're going to have to slide that another year or so. There's one critical project still that we don't have funding lined up for. We did have and then lost it because our timeline didn't work out. So uh, that's still unknown.
1: Wow. Um, You know, some years ago we talked about um, the Scotty's Castle project and the repairs. Um, I can't believe it's still going on. And now 25 or 26 or maybe 27. And at the time we talked, you know, you mentioned a lot of the the historic preservation requirements that have to be met. And then, of course, there's the whole contracting thing. Are are those some of the elements that are that have been delaying um, the reopening of the castle?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, so to talk kind of big picture why it's taken so long to get Scotty's Castle reopened since the flood in 2015, so nearly eight years ago. Um, doing it right was definitely a problem, and specifically I'm going to focus on one of the buildings and what happened there. So the building I'm going to talk about mostly is not the castle, but instead it's the building called the Garage Longshed Bunkhouse if you've been to the castle, it would have been the very first building right in front of you when you parked your car. Depending how long ago you were there, it might have had a cafe in it, or more recently, it was our visitor center. Right. That building, because it was the lowest in the floodplain, got four feet of mud and rocks through it, including flooding that punched through the wall on one side and punched out the other side. So that was the most damaged building. We looked at that historic building and said, it's an L shape also. So the flood came down the long leg of the L and then got caught in that junction of the L and then punched through a narrow doorway there. So our engineers said, wouldn't it be great if in addition to building the flood protection that we now have completed there, uh, that we realize eventually that flood protection will be overtopped. In addition to that, Let's make this building itself more resilient to future floods by widening that three foot wide doorway to make it 14 feet wide, the whole width of this little alcove. But that's a change to a historic structure. So we knew we needed to have permission from the State Historic Preservation Office. It took us 26 months, just over two years, to get to that agreement. Honestly, part of that was us miscommunicating with them, so I do not mean to throw them under the bus, but (laughs) it was complicated getting to that permission. Uh, Then at that point, when we started the construction work, uh, COVID hit, that slowed everything down. Then the real big thing that happened, construction was 37% complete on that building when overnight a fire happened. The contractors were the first ones to find it when they arrived at six o'clock in the morning to find the garage portion of the building burnt to the ground with just a portion of one wall still standing and the fire was spreading into the longship. So they went in in their jeans and their hard hat and sprayed with hoses and kept the fire down while and reported it to our dispatch so that our fire truck and the volunteer fire department from Beatty, Nevada could respond an hour later to get there and further extinguish the fire. Um, that slowed everything else down in the site because that building had asbestos in it and it had heavy metals. And so we lost another six months to everything else due to not being able to get a heavy tarp to cover this up because it was COVID and supply chain issues. And so no one could safely work on anything else up there because this building had burnt down. So that's a bit of the challenges that we've run into. Um, Contracting... um, any one of these projects takes three years, and trying to do the over $50 million worth of repairs with different contractors at the same time uh, has been an overwhelming task for us. So
0: I apologize
2: then- it's taken so long, and I personally absolutely love the castle. My background, the first 10 years I worked here, I was the supervisor at Scotty's Castle. It is a special place. I cannot wait to see it open to the public. The park is working really hard to do it. And... I am frustrated also.
1: Yeah, no, it it really is an incredible part of Death Valley. I guess money's another issue. It's not like um, the Park Service has a, a construction fund to respond to disasters.
2: Right. We usually don't. And that was one of the challenges after Scotty's Castle flooded was that there was no disaster fund. So we needed to Pursue the funding for each of those things, like pursue a funding for replacing the sewer system that got destroyed, pursue funding for replacing the water system that got destroyed, pursue funding for the electrical repairs, and then all the buildings and the parking lot and the road, and all those were from separ- separate pots of money, mostly within the National Park Service, some from federal highways, and the Park Service budgets out its projects three to five years in advance. So basically, we were going around and saying, pretty please, can we cut in line? Pretty please, we had this disaster. Doesn't make sense to do nine projects and not to do the 10th because we still can't open if we don't have all of them done. And so that was a real stressor. The last couple of years, Congress has done something amazing for the National Park Service. So in fiscal year 22, last year, and fiscal year 23 that we're nearly finished with, Congress added an appropriation to the National Park Service's budget as a whole. So the National Park Service's budget overall is, uh, now I'm going to re- misremember the numbers, but I think it's $4.5 billion. It's And they added in about a half, a billion and a half dollars to the National Park Service as a whole to deal with the disasters that happened in the end of fiscal year 22 and the beginning of fiscal year 23. Right. And so that funding has been amazing for us with the flood recovery from last year's flood. Don't know if there will be similar things for this year, but that really has been a great thing that the Park Service has had, at least in recent years, a disaster recovery fund, which we didn't have before.
1: Yeah, yeah, I believe Yellowstone got the, the bulk of that money, but it, there, there was a, a lot that went around, which was, which was nice to say, or nice to see rather. In the wake of last summer's storm, 2022, and the one last month, and and hopefully there won't be one in September, is there a need to rethink repairs and rebuilding? I mean, do you just rebuild the roads the way they were and hope that you don't get another flood coming through that tears them all up again? I mean, do you need to to raise the the roads above the the landscape so uh, floodwaters can pass beneath them without tearing the roads out?
2: There absolutely is a need to consider how to smartly repair the park. And we did that after Scotty's Castle got flooded. So um, both for the road and for the infrastructure. I'll talk about protecting the buildings there first. So we had a large project. It cost a couple million dollars to install a couple of flood canals and a very large gabion lined berm. Uh, Gabions are wire baskets filled with rocks. So this Large massive thing protecting Scotty's Castle from the next flood coming down the canyon. We only built it to withstand a hundred year flood, but in this particular storm, it did its job. It diverted the flooding away from Scotty's Castle. So this storm, Hillary, did not impact Scotty's Castle largely because of that smart investment. And for that particular project, we used recreation fee dollars, which is the money that you as the Visitors to national parks pay when you pay for a campground or pay your entrance fee or buy your national park pass. Uh, all of the money goes into that fund source. So thank you, the visitors, for helping us protect Scotty's Castle. And then also at Scotty's Castle, the road that goes through that canyon. We worked with federal highways and we considered everything from close the road entirely. Not that we wanted to do that, but we considered it. Um, turn it into a dirt road, which would be easier to plow dirt off of and maybe reopen after it, it closes and due to a flood, uh, to replace it like it was or to replace it similar with some armoring. And then the, the biggest alternative was move it into a superhighway up on the hillsides with overpasses and, and all of that. Well, that would never flood but that was way too expensive and too impactful to the resources in the park. So what we went with was the second to last option I just described. Basically put the road back where it was, but in some places either lower the road to the level of the wash so that the floods can just flow over it. And in many places we armored the road by burying erosion control into the shoulders on either side of the road. And so what that looks like for us is a K rail Think about K-rails. Those are those three foot tall concrete barriers. They're also called Jersey barriers. You see them all the time for temporary barriers. But we bought a bunch of those and buried them right underneath the shoulder of the road and then put more erosion control out into the shoulder. And what that does is when floods flow over the road and then start scouring away the downhill shoulder, they can't cut back under the pavement and that makes it a lot easier for us to repair and reopen the roads when all we have to do is plow dirt off and fill in holes uh, but don't have to replace pavement we're working to do that with the recovery for these projects now uh, but it's really a, a moving target for when whether we can get all the environmental and historic compliance and the funding all lined up with the contractor to be able to do that but fingers crossed i think we'll be able to Fix the roads this time in a way that will make them more resilient, just like we did up at Sky's Castle.
1: Sure, sure. Any idea how many miles of roads you would have to address? I mean, obviously, I think you said there's more than a thousand miles of roads in Death Valley. You're not going to go out and treat all those, are you?
2: No, it's a great question. Uh, I, I actually can't, don't know how many miles of road they would be talking about putting the K, K rails in next to. Uh, It's pretty substantial, but no, it wouldn't be all 200 and something miles of paved roads in the park.
1: Yeah. Wow. Incredible. And of course, uh, the mystery question, the question you probably can't answer is when might the park reopen?
2: All right. So that is a moving target as well. Most likely the first, a section of California 190 will probably open first, but Caltrans doesn't even know which section and they haven't given us a timeline on that they're trying to reopen all of 190 by early December. So don't hold them to that. That's not a promise. It depends what happens between now and then. Uh, But a portion of the park might open before that. December. December, yes. I can hear your voice and I can (laughs) see your face. (laughs) I know, I know, I
1: know. Well, I've been there. (laughs) I've seen Death Valley. It's a great place. (laughs) Um, All those people who had it on their bucket list, we're just going to have to delay a little bit. Now I'm curious, um, Death Valley is known for its heat. I mean, people come because they want to say they experienced 120, 125 degree weather. Um, the the history of heat in Death Valley goes back, I think, to 1934 or 35 at least when it was designated the hottest place on earth with, I think it was almost 135, was it 134 degrees, do you recall?
2: It was 134 degrees in 1913. 13. And then since then, the hottest we've been is 130, which was in the summer of 2020 and the summer of 2021.
1: Yeah. So my question is, what about historic flooding? I mean, is this a, a new paradigm of weather in, in Death Valley or are these occasional torrential downpours? Um, do they dot the the calendars going back decades?
2: There definitely were floods all through the park's history and clearly geologically. Before that, the, going back in time and kind of in the last couple of decades, so there was severe flooding this year, 2023, severe flooding park-wide in 2022. There were a few more moderate storms around 2017, 2018 that impacted a few parts of the park. Major storms in 2015, that's when Scotty's Castle got damaged, but it wasn't completely park-wide. Before that, the really largest big event was August of 2004, followed up by more flooding that same December. The one in 2004 killed two people, and Hmm. I moved here nine months after that, and Caltrans had just reopened 190 at that point. Um, as far as storms before that, there definitely were more in the admin record that I've heard about, but it doesn't sound like they were as major or as impactful as the ones we've had in recent decades.
1: Yeah, interesting. So along with um, doing the physical repairs to the infrastructure, th- does this give you uh, a chance to to work with interpretation and come up with new interpretive programs for the visitor to understand, you know, the, I don't wanna say the wrath of nature, but the the power of nature at Death Valley.
2: We haven't even thought about what we might do for future interpretation of this, but on our webpage, we have a a site that is just about Hillary and that's a sub page off of our flash flooding page because it clearly is something that impacts not only people's safety, their experience in the park, uh, but also the geologic state of the park. So that's there. And we're continually now working on the Hillary page. It's a work in progress. As we get new photos or videos of crews working, we keep updating that page. Uh, Right now, all of our interpretive staff, even though the park is closed, they are fully engaged with doing podcast interviews. And 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 other things like that. So so we're entirely focused, working way more than the eight hours in a day that would be our normal time working. I had responding to questions from the public and the media at large about Hillary.
1: Just just another day in the park, Abby.
2: It
1: is. That's Abby Wines, a management analyst at Death Valley National Park, discussing a recent Hillary storm that came through as well as uh, past rainstorms in recent history. Abby, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your insights and uh, best of luck to you and the rest of the staff there at Death Valley putting the park back together.
2: Thank you. I think we need it.
1: That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. At The Traveler, we'll work to keep you updated on the cleanup in Death Valley and when the park will reopen. It's an incredible place and one you should definitely consider for a visit. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you
0: in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at OrangeTreeProductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.